welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Uh, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. So we'll kind of do something a little different this morning. We'll kind of jump around a little bit in Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6. And then we will conclude with some verses from Matthew chapter 7. So we'll kind of do my kind of do our best to kind of make a sweep of chapters 5 and 6 of a portion of scripture that we typically call the Sermon on the Mount. But then we'll conclude with Jesus' conclusion of his sermon. But before we uh, proceed, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now and we just pray that you would just bless this time. Lord, may your word speak to all of our hearts and that our hearts would be prepared to receive it. Lord, and you would speak to all of us uh, individually and as a church where we are. Pray that the gospel would be clear and that whether there is anyone who currently that does not know you or whether for those that do know you, we pray that we would all look unto Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. So we all know the expression to face the music, right? You might have heard that expression. So the origin of that expression, there's an old story that goes like this. The expression face the music is said to have originated in Japan. According to the story, one man in the imperial orchestra couldn't play a note. But being a person of great influence and wealth, he had demanded that he, had been, that he be given a place in the group because he wanted to perform before the emperor. Perform. The conductor agreed to tell him... That, Sorry, the conductor agreed to let him sit in the second row of the orchestra, even though he couldn't even read music. He was given a flute, and when a concert would begin, he'd raise his instrument, pucker his lips, and move his fingers. He would go through all the motions of playing, but he never made a sound. The deception continued for two years. Then a new conductor took over. He told the orchestra that he wanted to audition each player personally. One by one, they performed in his presence. Then came this flutist's turn. He was frantic with worry, so he pretended to be sick. However, the doctor who was ordered to examine him declared that he was perfectly well. So the conductor insisted that the man appear and demonstrate his skill. Shamefacedly, he had to confess that he was a fake. He was unable to face the music. And that's what we'll see here this morning, that one day we will all have to face the music, so to speak, before God. C.S. Lewis said, he has a lot of great quotes, as many of us know. He once said about the Sermon on the Mount, as for caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. 
Again, that's C.S. Lewis's take on the Sermon on the Mount. So again, we won't kind of exposit one particular passage this morning, but I'll try my best to kind of give a sweep of what we call the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. So many people have said many different things about this portion of Scripture. Uh, It's one of the most well-known parts of Scripture. Many parts of it are often quoted. And it, but as you read it, you realize so much of it, in fact, all of it really goes against our human nature and our human natural tendencies. It lays for us, it's really God's summary of true morality. And it lays for us exactly what perfection really looks like. If you think, If you are here this morning and you think that you can get to heaven on your own by being good enough, then read Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and then see if you can really, truly be good enough. There are so many different ways to look at this passage and so many different points that we can make about it. But what I would like to do this morning is to draw out maybe Jesus's kind of some of his main points in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. And then we'll look at his conclusion of his words. I mean, I suppose we could just simply read the three chapters of Scripture and then just sit and meditate for 20 minutes, and that would probably be convicting enough. Uh, however, but with, with all of the commands from these words of Scripture, from all of these wonderful sayings from the Lord Jesus, uh, there is one overarching point that he is making, and that's what we'll... That's, what, that's where we'll land uh, this morning. But before going any further, I want to address maybe some misguided interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, perhaps you might have heard some of these ideas before. They might be popular on some Christian television stations. Uh, there's one view of the Sermon on the Mount that places Jesus' goal, that says Jesus' goal in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is really to correct the old law or the Ten Commandments, which were read that uh, Mr. Steve read in our scripture reading, right? The Ten Commandments. Jesus' goal is to correct some flaws in the Ten Commandments because it wasn't good enough. And so Jesus' goal is to replace the Ten Commandments with his new commandment because the Ten Commandments are lacking something. You might have heard that before. So Jesus is giving us something totally new that no one had ever heard before. Or another view is that the words of Jesus are not really applicable today, but instead they're just a summary of what you might call kingdom living. So Jesus is just describing what it's going to look like in heaven. This is how people are going to act in heaven because sin will be removed, but, but we ought not to think that there's any application for it for us today in the here and now. Thus, the application, right, the, the logic being the application is There's nothing we can take away from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That is equally false. Then there's another view that says, well, since Jesus is speaking prior to the crucifixion and his resurrection, his words are not really applicable for us today because they're under what's called the old covenant, right? Jesus hadn't died and risen again yet. So because of that, then it's not applicable. But suffice it to say, we won't spend really time here, but suffice it to say those views are wrong. Any view that says that Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 aren't applicable to us today is wrong. It does a complete disservice to Jesus' intention 
when he's speaking in those chapters. So let's look first at chapter 5, very, very quickly. Much of chapter 5 is dealing with the law of God and showing its true meaning and its true application and really exposing the hearts of the religious leaders at the time. So the the majority of chapter 5 focuses on explaining what Jesus means when he says in verses verses 17 through 20, he says what we might think is kind of a provocative thing that he says in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so much of what he says in the following verses is explaining there what he means. And he says that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And that might sound kind of odd to us, given who the Pharisees were and what their practices were. One early 20th century theologian uh, was quoted saying in a famous book of his, uh, given how, many Christ- how, how a lot of Christians apply the Sermon on the Mount and its moral teachings, you would think that Jesus came to say, don't think I came to fulfill the law, but I came to abolish it. So we are saved by grace, and thank God for that. We're saved by grace, and I would argue that God's people have always been saved by grace. But we ought not to think that the law serves no purpose for us today, and that there is nothing that we are to take from God's law today. That is wrong. Many of Jesus' hearers, because we have to understand, many of Jesus' hearers and the religious leaders of his day that he constantly exposes Many of them thought that by keeping God's law in a certain way, that they could earn merit with God and they could earn heaven, that God owes them something now because they are so righteous. But as Jesus shows in Matthew chapter 5, their interpretation of God's law was on a very superficial level. It didn't address their heart. So Jesus now shows them That you focus so much on the outward, but you act as if and you forget that God is focused on the heart. And what is our heart condition before him? Not simply on externals. So if we're making like major points here, I'd say maybe the first point we could draw out of Matthew chapter 5 is that God desires obedience of the heart, not simply on an external level. And this is what the Pharisees lacked. There's a sense in which this is what this is part of what Jesus means when he says, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we might think, well, but the Pharisees were super righteous. They were super spiritual because they would they would try to keep all of God's laws, but it was on an external basis. They would take God's law that says to bind it around your wrist and bind it on your forehead. And so they thought they were obeying that law simply just by physically putting a box around their forehead that had a little scripture inside of it. And that they're, they're, they're obeying God's law simply by doing that. And Jesus is saying, no, you're, you're not keeping God's law in your heart. And so they didn't have a righteousness that spoke to their heart. And so that's part of what Jesus is saying when he's talking about having a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees. Is there a heart change? And Jesus says 
And then as we know, Jesus goes on to address certain aspects of the law and certain teachings that they had, right? In verse 22 of Matthew chapter 5, right? He says, he's saying, you've heard that in verse 21, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to hell fire. So he's saying, don't think you're just that you're in right standing with God simply because you don't physically commit the act of murder. Where's your heart at? Maybe you don't kill the man, but are you wishing that bad things happen to him? So you really think you can stand before God with that kind of heart just because you didn't commit the act? So that's what Jesus is getting at. And then in verse 28, right, he goes on to speak about adultery and lust. He says, but I, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, which is true. God's law says that. But I also say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart, in, in, with her in his heart. So don't think that you're, that you're blameless before God simply because you didn't commit the act. Where's your heart? Are you, are you dwelling upon it and indulging in the thoughts constantly? Don't think you can stand before God because God doesn't just see your actions. He sees your heart. And so that's Jesus's point. And he goes on, he continues on in chapter five to speak of things like retaliation, right? When someone sins against you is your first inclination to get even with them, right? But Jesus says, don't do that. You're not, you're not obeying, you're not being in line with God's law from your heart then. He's saying, love your enemies, Right? And pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Because he says, and when you think about it, he's so simple and plain and clear. Even like the worst person in the world might love those who are kind to them. Right? But what credit is that? That's, that's, no, award. that's no reward for that. That's nothing special. Right? He says, but if you, if you love your enemies, then you'll receive reward in heaven. And then he goes on and he says, be holy as your heavenly father is holy. He says, imitate God, right? And in this way, because God shows love to his enemies. So that's a way that Jesus is saying here that be imitators of God. And explicitly you ask, well, how does God love his enemies? Well, remember Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that says, God demonstrates his own love in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were good with God, or while we were working ourselves to God and getting, and getting more righteous. No, while we were sinners, while we were still enemies of God, he still was gracious and sent his son to die for us. And as mentioned before, Jesus, Jesus is calling us to a seemingly impossible task. Again, when we, we already kind of looked at it, but considering who the Pharisees were, right? They were very outwardly righteous, but inwardly they were, they were very far from God. As Jesus quotes uh, the prophet Isaiah, when he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Everything they did was for a show, as we'll see here more explicitly in chapter six. Now read with me chapter six, verses five through seven. As we'll see another point here that Jesus makes is that God wants obedience of the heart and cares for our motives in why we do what we do. Why do you do what you do when you serve the church, when we serve others, when we 
when we commit good deeds, as it, as it were, why do we do it? Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And so Jesus is saying here, he, he's, we're, we'll just use the illustration of prayer, right? But Jesus is saying, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. And, and biblical, biblically, the term hypocrite is a little different than what we think of it today. The term hypocrite in the New Testament literally means an actor, like a stage player who in ancient Greece, when they would have uh, public plays, they would literally have a mask over their face. They would be, they would be someone, but behind the mask, they would play someone on stage, but behind the mask, there's someone different. And so that's the, when Jesus says a hypocrite, he's literally saying like an actor, someone who, who's two-faced, who pretends to be someone on a stage, but really behind the scenes, there's someone totally different. And so Jesus is saying there are some that are like that in life, not just in a, in a performance on stage in a, in a play. And so he mentions, he mentions this, he mentions the same point regarding giving to the needy and fasting. Saying, well, if you're really doing it for God, you're not going to do it in a sense where it's like you just want everybody to see it and you're fasting, which is like a spiritual thing, right, in their eyes to get you closer to God. And it's like, he's saying, don't be someone who's fasting, who's just looking gloomy all day and just, you know, I'm just... Sorry, I can't do it. I'm just so hungry and I'm just so weak. I can't. I'm just going to sit here and look holy while I'm fasting. Well, then you're doing it to be seen by someone else. You're not doing it before God. He's saying, no, if you're fasting and you're really doing it before God, then wash your face, put oil on your face, and just don't tell anybody that you're doing it. Right? It could be used with anything. But here, uh, Jesus uses the illustration of prayer. And I'll admit... Um, it's tempting for me uh, to, and it can be tempted for some of us at times, maybe to use prayer as a method to be seen by others when we publicly pray. But let us resist that temptation. When we pray publicly, let's remember that we're really still have an audience of one, which is God. We're praying to God. You know, I know I've been guilty of times of feeling tempted to to, you know, how many Bible verses can I cram into this prayer before everybody else so that they hear me quote the Bible when I'm praying? And, and let's, not, let's not do that, right? Because, that, because Jesus says, if you're praying to be seen by others, you've already got your reward. Don't expect God to hear you. Because if you're seeking to be seen by others, okay, it's not hard to do it. You're seen by others. You have your reward. The prayer is going nowhere. God isn't interested in it, if that's all we're seeking. And so then, of course, after this, he shows us a model for how we ought to pray. To pray privately, shut the door, and then we pray to God who is in secret. And then he will reward us. Now, it doesn't mean never to pray publicly. I don't want to be misunderstood. That's not the point. But the idea is not to do it in a way to where we're simply just wanting to be seen by others. And so he gives us a model for prayer, which we refer to as the Lord's Prayer, following in chapter 6. And so now we'll go further into chapter 7, 
If you want to put your thumb on chapter 7, verse 13, that's we'll read verses 13 through 27. So this is where we'll focus, which is kind of Jesus's conclusion, right? He's given, he's given an explicit model for true morality. If we're going to truly be made right before God in and of ourselves, then we need to completely and 100% follow everything he says in chapters 5 and 6. And so just some points up to this point that we've already mentioned. But firstly, right, he opens up the, the Sermon on the Mount with what we call the Beatitudes, which is which describes the heart of a believer. Not the kind of heart that earns merit with God, but the heart condition in which allows themselves to receive God's mercy. The kind of heart that, that is simply showing that God is working in them. That's the first 12 verses of chapter 5. And then we see Jesus explaining to, uh, that his disciples, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5. And then, and then again, as we looked at, he, he goes to great extents to teach that following God's law doesn't simply just mean following on the outside, but on the inside, obeying God inwardly. And that's what he spends the rest of chapter 5 doing. Because really, if we, if we truly love God, if we truly, our hearts are fixed on him, then we wouldn't even want to disobey him in our heart. Right? It's like if, if someone who's married, if you want to truly honor your spouse, then you, want, then you don't even want to think bad things about them. Right? If, I'm, if I'm dwelling on evil thoughts toward the person, then I'm not truly loving them. Right? So it's the same. Why would we think any different about our relationship with God? And then fourthly, we see again in chapter six, not acting, not simply just putting on a performance for others and acting righteously in front of others, but knowing that God sees everything and making pleasing him our greatest concern. And it's interesting, right? Because in the beginning of chapter five, Jesus says to let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. But then in chapter 6, he says, be careful not to do your righteous acts simply before others. Now, how do we reconcile that? We reconcile that by recognizing the heart condition. Are we truly seeking God and honoring him, or are we doing it just to be seen by others? That's how we can reconcile what Jesus seems to say, okay, do your righteous acts before others, but then don't do it. Well, where's your heart at? If your heart isn't simply to please God, then... I ought to maybe at least question what my motives are. And then fifthly, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but in chapter 6, verse 24, he speaks of not being a slave of two masters, right? Not being anxious, but trusting God to provide your needs when you pursue him. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, right, which is the, the, the non-Christian's favorite Bible verse to quote, Right, judge not, lest you be judged. Right, but but there is a con. There is Jesus. He he is, he 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 is communicating something there, and the idea there not to judge hypocritically, not to think that um, that I am able to condemn or judge another person when I have when I'm committing a greater sin than they are. Right, but to take the plank of my out of my own eye, and then I can see clearly to look at the speck of sawdust in the other person's eye. To, to not judge or condemn hypocritically, but to, but to check ourselves before we want to pronounce judgment on another. 
not to minimize our own sin and maximize someone else's. That's maybe how we can sum it up. Again, there's so many things we can draw on from these, from these few chapters. But now let's focus on Jesus' conclusion. Read with me chapter 7, verses 13 through 27. Jesus says, after all of this, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the deceased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the clouds came and the, the, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So lastly, the third point we would make is Christ is the only way. The Christian life is a narrow way. Jesus has explained it a bit by what the narrow way looks like in some of the passages that we've read and we've, we looked at briefly. But the thing is, given the, the thing is so many people, so many Americans, so many that call themselves Christians, think that they are on the road to heaven when in fact they're on a road that leads to condemnation. I was having a conversation, I had a conversation with someone a while back uh, and he kind of asked, we were in a group setting and he kind of asked the question, you know, I wonder like, why was the early church so persecuted? Why, why were they so heavily persecuted, fed to the lions, crucified, lit on torches to light the city of Rome? to light the streets of Rome and all of this hostility towards people that just said they followed Jesus. Why? Why was it so harsh? And why is it still so harsh in some places today? Of course, there are multiple reasons. You can't pigeonhole one reason. But there, there are multiple reasons. But one that certainly would go at the top, if not very close to the top, is because Christians have always, and, and the Bible always claims what's called the exclusivity of Jesus, that the, Christ, the Orthodox Christian Church has always taught Jesus is the only way to God. All other ways lead to destruction. 
And when we tell an, a, 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 a pluralistic society that, they want you dead. They don't want to hear that. Because no, we have to be accepting of everything. It's politically incorrect. It's politically incorrect today, but it was politically incorrect 2,000 years ago in first century Rome. Because when you say there's only one way, you're saying all the other ways are wrong. And the culture does not want to hear that. But Jesus says clearly in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus was not, he was not arbitrary about it. Again, it goes against everything our society today holds dearly. And it, but, but again, the sad thing is that many people do not realize that the way is straight and narrow. The way to heaven is not, is not just wide open and you can make it whatever you want. It's just simply not true. All, but all false teachers portray it in a way that it's leading to heaven. I mean, who would follow someone who, who came to a group of people and said, let me show you how to go to hell. Let me show you. Come with me and, and, and I'll show you. Nobody would follow that person. Not even Satan did that to Eve. And he said, no, you eat this fruit and you'll be like God. And he took some, he took some truth that, yeah, God is real. God, you saw God, he spoke to you, but you just misinterpreted what he said. Right? And Satan doesn't work any differently today. So there are many, many today who deny that the way to heaven is straight and narrow but many others think that they're on the straight and narrow, but they're not. Again, many, if we took a survey in America, just let's just pick on America for a moment. <laughs> um, you ask many, they might say, well, I've always been a Christian. Or, which, okay, that, 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 um, okay in a sense, I guess maybe that, that kind of might be true, I guess. Maybe you don't remember when you weren't a Christian, but you know, I was raised in a Christian home, or I, I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was eight years old at VBS, and it, I'm good. It's like, I got my flu shot. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I'm good, right? But hopefully, those of us that know Christ, we understand that our, just our profession of faith in and of itself, it really doesn't mean anything. Just simply saying I'm a Christian. It, it, if, that's our, if that's the ground we're standing on, we're not on solid ground. If it's just our profession of faith, just saying I'm a Christian. And so knowing this, Jesus says some of the most, they might be the most sobering words in all of Scripture. There are plenty of them to choose from, but hearing it from Jesus again in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23 that, that we read. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So Jesus didn't put much stake in simply just calling him Lord. And he says, well, not everyone that calls me Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But he says, only those who do the will of my father who will in heaven, who, who, who is my, to do the will of my father who is in heaven. He says, on that day, there are going to be many who say, Lord, Lord. And the Hebrew uh, linguistic uh, terminology there is they emphatically declared him as Lord. And they said, they say, Lord, we, we did all of these things. We prophesied in your name. We even cast out demons in your name. But he says something terrifying. He says, but to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never, I never knew you. 
And the Greek word there, uh, to, to know, the Greek word, when, when he says, I never knew you, he did, he's not saying that I, I, didn't, I, I didn't know who you were. You know, I didn't know your name. I didn't, well, who, who's this guy? I didn't know who he, I, I, never knew, I never heard of this guy. No, that's not what he's saying. Uh, as, as some of us may know, the Greek word to know there communicates strong intimacy. If, if you get my drift, it's the same word that is used in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, when it describes that Joseph did not know Mary until after she gave birth to Jesus. We know that's not saying that he just did, he, when they walked from Nazareth to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem during the census that he just introduced, he didn't introduce himself to her and he kind of closed off and said, okay, I'm not going to introduce myself to her until she, until she has the baby. No, he, they weren't intimate. And that's what's being described here. Jesus is saying, I wasn't close and intimate with you. You didn't seek me when you needed counsel. You didn't, you didn't follow me. You didn't value my teaching or anything like that. You didn't pray to me sincerely. It was all a show. And that's what he's saying. We, you weren't intimate with me. And let, let me illustrate this for a moment. Many of us know who the now retired uh, NFL quarterback was, Peyton Manning. Uh, he was he was my my favorite athlete of all time, and l- let me illustrate to you. Uh, there, th- I could tell you so much about this man. Um, he was raised by his father, who was an NFL quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. So Peyton Manning grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana. He went to high school and he played quarterback in high school with his older brother, who was the wide receiver. Who his older brother had the number sixteen, and Peyton, Man- or sorry, his number, his brother was number eighteen. Peyton Manning was number sixteen. When his older brother got injured, he took number sixteen to honor his older brother. He was drafted number one overall in the nineteen ninety eight NFL draft by the Indianapolis Colts. He told them to draft him because he said. If you guys don't draft, if you guys don't draft me, I'm going to spend the next 15 years beating you. So you better take me. And he ultimately ended his in, his NFL career with 200 wins in college. He went to Tennessee. He was 39 with six losses in in college. When he retired, he had the NFL record for most touchdowns and most passing yards. But you want to know something? I never have met him. I don't know him, and he has no idea who I am. But I know a lot about him. And there are so many who know, who might know things about Jesus. But he doesn't know them in a close way. And so they say to him, didn't we do all of these things? We, we cast out demons in your name. But he says, I never knew you. You were never intimate with me. You never sought out after me. You never truly obeyed me from the heart. And so another, uh, another illustration here. So it, it, it would be nice, right, for, for me to, and I have on occasion, uh, I try to be a good husband, to give my wife flowers, right? And, and, and that's a good thing. Husband, you ought to do something nice for your wife uh, on occasion. But there's a difference, right, between me giving my wife flowers and then some stranger or stalker giving your wife flowers. That's creepy, right? That's like, Okay, who is this person? Um, do we have a, some kind of stalker? Do I need to call the police? What's going on here? So there's a difference. When it's from someone who is close and intimate with you, it's welcome and it's, it's praise, it's glorious. But when it's from someone who you do not know, it's received differently. 
And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. So for those that know Christ, I hope this, I hope this doesn't discourage you, um, but simply just to serve as a reminder that, just a reminder of where we ought to keep our trust in Christ and not to think that we ought to make some performance before him and to rely on our own holiness because you don't have your own holiness, right? But apart from Christ. And but if you are here this morning and maybe you don't know Christ or maybe what I've is something nothing that I've said have made has made any sense to you or that you think Christianity is simply a list of do's and don'ts and it's just right you have to be good you know like Santa Claus is nice and naughty list just be good don't be naughty and then you'll be okay No it's not it's not like that uh, Let me take this opportunity to share with you that according to scripture there's nothing you can do. You've already blown it. It's not about being on the nice list as opposed to the naughty list. You've already blown it. We've already sinned before God. And the question is, how can you atone for that? You can't atone for it by, you know, by, by trying now to be better. That's like a child cleaning his room by just shoving everything in the closet and then closing the door and thinking his room is clean. No, there's going to come a day when that door is open and then you're your, your sin will be revealed. There's no, you can't just cover it up as if God doesn't see what's really going on. And so there's no way to save yourself in order to get to heaven. Uh, reading Matthew, uh, Matthew 5 through 7 hopefully proves that. that we can't, wow, well, my, maybe I've refrained from the act, but my heart is still not right. And that's the point. It's that we need Christ's righteousness. If you don't know Christ, then what you need is you need someone to stand before you and God and make you right with God the Father. And that's what Jesus does. That now, when Jesus was on the cross, he took upon the sin of all who would believe in him. And that doesn't mean Jesus became sinful, but that he took upon sin and God punished him, Jesus willingly going and being obedient to the Father, uh, the Father punishes Jesus instead of sinners. And so now in the same way, if now I turn to Jesus, repent of my sin, ask for forgiveness, and now follow Christ and turn to him, that now I get Jesus' righteousness, just like he got my sin. And now I can walk in a way that by God's grace is pleasing to him. So turn to Christ and follow him. Repent of your sin. And turn to him and you can be forgiven. And you don't have to try to put on some facade as if you can cover up your sins before God. But that Jesus can pay it in full. As he said on the cross, it is finished. It's done. But you have to come to him and turn, turn to him in faith and repentance. And so notice, notice the, as, we, as we close, notice the contrasts in the passage that we read. In Matthew 7, 13 through 27, we see two different gates, two different paths, two different trees, two different kinds of fruit, two different foundations, two different kinds of people, ultimately two different eternal destinies, one based on Christ, one based on falsehood. We see Christ uses such a beautiful and such a simple illustration between a man, between two different house builders. And two different foundations in which, in which they build their home. So the one who built his house on sand, he either didn't believe there was a storm coming 
or he believed that the storm wasn't going to be that bad to where his house on sand could withstand the storm. And so just looking, the, the point being, not in hurricane preparation, but in the fact that God will one day judge the world through Christ. And our only safety is in Christ. So he says, the one who hears my words and does them is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. But then he says, the one who hears my words and doesn't do them. So the the difference between the two is not that one heard Jesus and the other one didn't. No, notice they both hear what Jesus says. The difference is what they do with Jesus's words. One of them acts in obedience and acts in light of what Jesus says, and the other one doesn't. Again, they don't think that the storm is going to be that bad, or they don't recognize that it's coming. And so again, so just to reiterate, guys, it's not enough to just hear Jesus' words. He says, whoever hears and does them. And we can only truly do what God says by God's Holy Spirit indwelling within us. And that comes uh, and, it re- and it reveals itself in our faith and repentance. But you must come to Christ. Again, the Christian life is an impossible thing. In and of ourselves, we can never, we can never even come close. to. We would just fall flat on our face every time when trying to keep Christ's commands to keep the commands of the scripture perfectly. We, we've all, again, we've already failed. Hopefully that's been made clear. But Jesus says these for a reason, and this is God, this is his, this is tr- what true morality looks like. And, and, and this is what it looks like to truly exuberate what it is to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But we can only do it through God's Holy Spirit. What it requires is a heart change, right? How can I, you know, how can I truly, again, just like for anyone who's a parent or who has, who has tried to correct a child, right? You can correct the behavior, but you don't know what they're thinking in their mind, right? What you long for is for their heart to change and to see why this is good for them. Right? And so we can, you know, somebody can, again, just like the Pharisees, someone can, can put on a, an outward appearance that they're holy, but what is required to truly honor God is, a, again, a heart change. And so have you had that heart change that allows you to see the beauty and the wonder of Christ, the Son of God? And to see your desperate need for him. And that if I stand before God on my own, I'm totally helpless. Because I have my own sin. But Christ, save me, forgive me, be my advocate. As the scripture refers to him. Be my advocate before God. And just lastly here, notice, again, just to look at Christ's illustration again. Notice his illustration that he uses between sand and a rock. Just bring out one point. Sand is so shifty, right? You can do whatever you want to with sand. You can make it any shape you want. The, the water will come in and the, the, the tide will come in and out and kind of move the sand to and fro. So it, it's, it's just kind of, it's very flexible, right? But a rock, 
firm foundation stands strong. It doesn't move. And so just notice that, just remember that in our culture, when we're relating to our culture nowadays, the culture is totally built on sand. And that's why the culture is always changing because it's not fixed on truth. It's not fixed on that which never changes. God's truth, God's law. And so someone who is standing on the rock is going to look crazy to a culture that is always changing. When in reality, it's the culture that's crazy. But, but just notice that illustration that Jesus uses there. It's not, a, it's not just for nothing. Right? There's so much we can just read into that. We can take away just from that illustration that he uses. So in the beginning, remember I mentioned the orchestra member, right? Who couldn't, who couldn't, play, couldn't play a note of music. But he wanted to look like he could because he wanted, to, he wanted the emperor to see him. But he had to face the music. Once it was his turn to play one-on-one in front of the new music conductor. So one day we will all stand before God and give an account. Uh, for anyone here who has rejected Christ, may God reveal to you that he desires for you to come to him and that you would come to him. And that you may know him. And if anyone, uh, and, may, and may those who know Christ, may, may none of us rest in any kind of false assurance uh, that we know Christ when, when in fact we don't. But let our foundation, our assurance be on Christ himself, on a firm foundation and on the fruit that has been born in our lives as a work of his. Not our own work, but as God working in our own hearts. So may God encourage us and exhort us to continue to trust in him for our own salvation, that we could truly walk according to the calling with which we've been called. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are sobered by, by your word as it just reveals our hearts as they are truly before you, as we are just wicked and hopeless without you, but with you working in our hearts, Lord. We pray that though we are sinners, Lord, through, Lord, through Christ, that, we, that you would be pleased with us. And we thank you for sending your son to make a way for us to be made right with you. And it's only through that sacrifice that we can stand before you boldly uh, before your throne and that we can, and that we can sing in a way that is pleasing to you and help us to do that now in a way that honors you. Lord, we ask everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.